This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The Telegraph Telegraph. Podcasts Five If you seriously think that you're being more informed by watching RT than the BBC, you need your head read Four This is the engine room of Britain's economic success Oh, I didn't really mean you. I was in a bad mood. I'm really sorry. Perhaps I was so scared of your driving that it's been a sort of traumatic thing in my head that I've forgotten. One. We have liftoff. And that's the sound of blastoff number 11. Strap yourself in for another midsummer touchdown on Planet Normal. This is the Telegraph podcast offering down-to-earth news and views from beyond the bubble with me, Liam Halligan, and ordinarily Alison Pearson. This week, though, Alison's still on holiday. I'm joined again by former Labour MP Kate Hoey. And Kate, part of the news we need to discuss is you, (laughs) because it seems your parliamentary career, it's about to be relaunched. Well, obviously, appearing as on Planet Normal was very good, because the next day it was announced that I'm... uh going into the Lords. And uh, that's obviously an honour for me, but an honour for lots of people who've, you know, worked with me over the years and on my constituents and all the work that I did on Brexit and Zimbabwe and this being sports minister. And most of all, my mum and dad, who unfortunately are not around to have seen it. A great shame. And it's not just about you, Kate. It's Claire Fox too. There were three of us on Planet Normal last week, me, you and Claire Fox. And I'm the one without the peerage. What's know. going on? I think I think you might have to wait just a little bit longer, Liam. <laughs> Plenty of news around this week, of course, as well as your peerage, Kate, Baroness, as we must learn to call you. The huge blast in, in Beirut, of course, that's killed at least 100 people in the Lebanese capital, tragically injuring around 4,000 more. It seems a terrible accident rather than a terrorist attack. There's the ongoing migrant crisis also as hundreds of illegal immigrants continue to cross the channel. Another subject that's generated huge numbers of emails to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. But let's start with the latest on coronavirus, Kate. We've had some 217 deaths involving COVID-19 in England and Wales in the week ending the 24th of July. They're the latest numbers from the Office for National Statistics. That's the lowest number of deaths for 18 weeks, with coronavirus deaths falling in all regions except for Yorkshire, and the Humber and the East Midlands. Now, the news this week is that the government seems to have changed its mind with regards to plans for over 50s, which includes both of us, to shield themselves in the event of a second wave of coronavirus infections. The emphasis now, it seems, will be more on local lockdowns targeted by area 
rather than age in the in the event of another large-scale outbreak? Mm. Well, I don't know. I, I mean, the over-50s thing would have been absolute nonsense, as was the original over-70s when it was almost implied that if you were over 70, you had to uh, lock yourself down. And, of course, uh, so many over-70s are quite healthy and like myself. And the idea that I was going to sort of lock myself down because somebody, some bureaucrat had said that that was, that was for my best interest. Uh, of course, people with underlying health problems at, at any age should be being more careful. But, you know, there was a word this week that was used by somebody else. And I, I've picked it up because I just think it's, it's really describes everything that's going on. That's coronaphobia. You know, people now mm. have got this almost obsessional fear about it and we've got to break that and we've got to break it by getting people back to work and obviously if there's a a rise in some area certain measures have to be taken but the media in particular just seem to pick up every single negative thing and never ever tell us how many people have recovered. I think as we do test more then obviously you're going to get a higher number of instances of the virus by definition because you're testing more But I think also gradually, hopefully, people will realise, wow, a lot of us have got the virus and we're completely asymptomatic. So perhaps to some extent, with suitable precautions taken, we can carry on with our lives and we don't need to trash the economy and we don't need to you know, have some kind of dystopian society where we're all scared to come out from under our collective duvet. I think people are getting really, a lot of people, although there are so many, many people who are scared, I think it's an awful lot of people now beginning to get a little bit fed up with the whole emphasis on, you know, lockdown. I think the we're now at a turning point. I think something that we've been talking about on Planet Normal literally for months and months since the beginning of the podcast is this impending wave of unemployment Mm. as the furlough scheme comes to an end. We're now, Kate, in the month of August, and so employers are being asked to contribute more, gradually more and more between now and October to the wages uh, of their furloughed staff. The furlough scheme, of course, ends completely in October. That really is the unemployment cliff edge, if you like. This scheme was only meant to be for like one, two, three million workers. That's about a tenth of the workforce. We're up at 10 million now, Kate, on furlough. That's a third of the workforce. And even though furloughing still exists and furloughed staff still have the majority of their wages paid for by the state, you're seeing the unemployment now really starting to be unveiled. Pizza Express has just closed 70% of its restaurants. Hayes Travel will be cutting almost 900 jobs. Some 1,700 jobs we learnt last week are at risk at DW Sports Mm. after the retailer collapsed into administration. Thousands of jobs gone in the arts, particularly theatres, have been in the news. We are, I think, heading, unfortunately, for unemployment well in excess of the 10% that I saw in my youth in the early 80s, and which I'm sure you Mm. remember as well. I, I think we're heading, unfortunately, for 12... 15, maybe even higher percent unemployment. And that is when I think the really difficult decisions for the government will start because you have people saying, just end this madness. We have to address this disease. We have to almost allow it to take its course. Of course, trying to 
generate uh, a, a, and develop a vaccine and get our people inoculated. But I think we will end up taking much more of a laissez-faire approach to this by necessity. Well, I, th- I think you're right. And the sooner that happens, because, of course, a lot of these jobs are based on what's happened in the last three months or so. If it keeps going on like this and the people aren't coming out and the cafes aren't being opened and there's nobody around to shop, then it's going to get worse. So it, it really is something... That, you know, and key to a lot of this will be whether we can get the schools absolutely must be back. Absolutely. And, that, and the government has to play absolute hardball on that. And frankly, if, if um, you know, teachers refuse to go back and the union plays uh, silly games, then, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of unemployed teachers out there who would love to get back into teaching. And I just think it needs now to come from the top. In other words, you know, the prime minister. And then when... Some of the media, as they will, and some of the politicians, whatever Boris says, somebody will come out and say that's the wrong thing. I think he has to then stick to being to being tough. We've just got to do that. Otherwise, we are in a terrible, terrible position over unemployment. And that is going to you know, ruin the lives of so many young people far, far more than COVID ever will. Of course, some schools have stayed open throughout this crisis, educating uh, the sons and daughters of, of key workers. There was rather more of a back to school in June when reception year one and year six yes. have been back for part of but that. But the pubs are open. But for the most, but the pubs are open, and now we're facing a situation where the pubs will stay open and f- the schools, for the most part, will stay shut. And even though I'm very much want to get the economy moving, that does seem to me incongruous. So the answer f- for me isn't to shut the pubs; it's to get the schools open and to be tougher on teachers if we need to be. And we've got to actually get back to the the idea that, you know, particularly the Prime Minister always did talk about common sense. And I've always been one of these people who've said, well, look, people have got common sense. We've got to recognise that, you know, most people have common sense, are adults and can make their own judgments about what, what they should do and what they shouldn't do. But that is not being helped by a ground, you know, continuous uh, nagging about fear, fear messages are coming from, from on the whole the mainstream media and particularly the BBC. There, I've got my little anti-BBC plug-in. There will be time. Don't worry, Kate. There, there's 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 plenty more time on this podcast and plenty, <laughs> plenty more opportunities. Hi there, podcast fan. It's Tom Gibbs here. I'm host of The Telegraph's Audio Football Club podcast. I'm very sorry for interrupting, but I wanted to let you know that football is finally back on the menu, and so is Audio Football Club. We'll be back in your podcast feed every Monday with analysis, chat and sarcasm from Mina Razuki, JJ Ball, Matt Law, and many, many more. Look for Telegraph Audio Football Club wherever you get your podcasts. I think when future historians look back on this period in our history, a lot of the analysis of where we've gone wrong will have its roots in in political discourse and the way we conduct our political mm. discourse, particularly in the age of social media. The, the hyper-tribalism of our politics at the moment, the lack of common sense when that's what so many members of the public are calling out for. And that brings us on to our guest on Planet Normal this week, Kate, who is somebody I know you respect. Mm. I'm delighted to say we're joined this week by the LBC presenter, Ian Dale. I've known Ian for, for many years. We used to do a regular show together on CNN, one of the best 
political commentators in the business, obviously a political insider. He stood for the Conservative Party uh, in his day, trying to become a, an MP. But he's found his real vocation, I think, in, in broadcasting on his LBC show. He's also got a new book out called Why Can't We All Just Get Along? And I think it's a book that's very, very timely, particularly as we try to grapple with the fallout from coronavirus. Well, I think like you, Liam, I've been really frustrated about the decline in public discourse, not just over the past few years, but I think more generally, where people just feel that they can be vicious and nasty to each other, particularly on social media. But it's not just social media. I think the body politic has been infected by it. I think also the mainstream media has been infected by it. If you look back at the cartoons of the 18th and 19th centuries and what went on in the House of Commons, I mean, it looks very calm and normal today, but by comparison to then. So I'm not saying that this is necessarily just a new development, but I do think the advent of social media and the internet has really exacerbated it, where people feel that they can say things to you on Twitter, for example, and I think Twitter is the main culprit here, they can say things to you on Twitter that they would never say to your face if they met you in the street. And when you actually point it out to somebody sometimes they will apologise or they say, oh, I didn't really mean you. I was in a bad mood. I'm really sorry. Sometimes they have to be shamed, though. I sometimes quote tweet people almost to ridicule them. But again, you have to be a bit careful about that because if it is somebody who's just had a bad day and they're just an ordinary member of the public, not used to being the centre of some sort of social media storm. I mean, I've got over 200,000 followers on Twitter. I find that they effectively act as my little army of soldiers. And if somebody's really nasty to me... They then swarm on this person and make their life hell. Now, I don't encourage them to do that, but that is just the way social media is. So I find that I have to be very careful about responding to anybody who's had a real go at me. Now, for most of the country that aren't on Twitter, of course, including most listeners to Planet Normal, I'd imagine, this Twitter, it sounds all a bit mad. How would you describe the relationship between Twitter, say, and the BBC? And how is it that Twitter affects what we're seeing on our television screens when we watch the Tea Time News? Well, this goes into the whole area of bias, impartiality, objectivity. And I think that... BBC journalists in particular have to be really careful. And there are plenty of examples where I think they've gone over the border of what is acceptable. This doesn't just happen on Twitter. It happens on screen too now, where perfectly good journalists feel that they can opine or editorialise on screen. Newsnight has become a sort of sub-channel for news programme in some ways because some of the presenters and journalists feel that they can introduce their own editorial into the programme. Now, I don't know about you, Liam, but that's not why I watch Newsnight. I watch Newsnight to see what's going on in the world that day, to get really good journalism reporting on what's going on. Some depth. I don't want... Some analysis. Some and, and I don't want the presenter to sit there and tell me what either he or she thinks, or what I should be thinking. I want to be informed and be able to make up my own mind. Now, there is room for that sort of programme, but it's not supposed to be on the BBC. You don't want people to be neutered. But on the other hand, there are borders. We all have borders. We all set our own borders in many ways. Some of us set them wrongly. I freely admit in the book that I've been as guilty at being a bit, sort of, shall we say, out there on Twitter in the past. And I've come up with ways to try to stop that happening in future. I'm not sure it's always successful, but you, you try your best. But you work for a private company and LBC doesn't get state funding. Our listeners 
don't have to pay LBC by law. They listen to LBC if they want to listen to LBC, and there are some ads that help pay your wages. There's a difference, isn't there? There is a clear difference. I regard partly of what we do is public service broadcasting. And if there's a breaking news story, for example, I will go into normal broadcast journalism mode. I won't editorialise. I just do what anybody would do on the BBC. But if you're conducting a phone-in on something, if I was on Five Live, I would have to say, well, on the one hand this and on the other hand that. I maybe do a little bit of that, depending on the subject, but I'm encouraged to give my opinion on what's going on. I'll give you an example. Ian Lee was fired by BBC Three Counties Radio because he took a homophobic caller to task in a phone-in and basically called her a bigot, which she was. Now, he got fired for that. I would be praised by my boss for that because, I mean, that's what any normal person would do. Yeah, it's a very difficult line, isn't it? I think there's a sort of feedback loop here. So journalists on the BBC, for instance, they put something out there that's very, very slanted and opinionated. They get hundreds of thousands of their Twitter followers, all of whom agree with them, saying how wonderful they are. And so they think that they're right. Aren't we in danger of confusing Twitter likes with the truth? Well, we are in danger of believing that Twitter is for planet normal people. It clearly is not. I don't know what you were doing on election day in December, but by five o'clock on election day, I was convinced that Jeremy Corbyn was heading for number 10 Downing Street purely because of what I was reading on Twitter. That's right. Uh, We all know what happened. Twitter is not representative. And I have to tell myself that a lot of the time when I constantly see tweets essentially backing up what the Russian government might be saying or the Chinese government might be saying, because it's very easy to fall into a belief that the entire British nation is under the illusion that the Russians and the Chinese are benevolent governments and people believe them rather than us. What the Russia and China have successfully done on Twitter is introduced an element of distrust in this country, well, maybe not introduced, but exacerbated it, where you constantly people say, well, I don't trust the mainstream media anymore. I get all my news now from Russia Today and Al Jazeera. Well, good luck with that. There is nothing wrong with looking at different news sources. But if you seriously think that you're being more informed by watching RT than the BBC, you need your head read. I think a lot of the stories that become big stories in the media nowadays would not have become that big without the power of social media. Social media means that something can effectively take off within a few hours. I'll give you an example. Up until last week, most people would never have heard of the Uyghur Muslims in China. That story has been sat on for months and months. I did a 20-minute documentary on LBC, which we don't really do documentaries, but I did this in September last year because I was horrified at what I was finding out. But virtually no one really in the mainstream media covered it for whatever reason. But this week, Majid Nawaz, my colleague on LBC, he went on hunger strike because he'd launched a parliamentary petition to get a parliamentary debate on it. And he was saying, well, I'm going to go on a hunger strike until I get 100,000 people signing up to this petition. So there's a debate. That happened. This is a minority group in China, just yeah, for people who don't that, know. That happened within two or three days. So it's being covered in all the newspapers, on the TV news programmes. And that is the power of social media. I mean, I do criticise a lot of actions on social media in the book, but it can be used for good as well. I remember a few months ago, I was clearing out some papers. I saw a letter from a guy I knew in 1983 in Germany called Ray in Hamburg. I wonder what he's doing now. I just put on Twitter... 
Anybody know Ray, 1983 Hamburg English language assistant? Within half an hour, we were direct messaging each other on Twitter. It was as if the previous 37 years had not happened, really. It was just rekindling an old friendship. So it can be used for good as well. You've got some fabulous chapters in the book. You've got When Opposites Collide, The Art of the Political Interview. Then, of course, you've got the B word, Brexit, the angry people of leave and remain. We were both quite prominent Brexiteers. Do you think the country's finally calmed down over this huge issue? I thought it had, but I think with the free trade deal being negotiated at the moment, uh, the old splits are coming back. I did a phone-in on Brexit the other day for the first time in months, and I'd live to regret it because all I got were the bitter old Remainers phoning in with the old arguments about, oh, the referendum wasn't legitimate. And I'm afraid by the end of the hour I got a bit ratty because I just thought these people had learnt the lesson that we are now out of the EU and we have actually formally left all the legal institutions. Boris Johnson, whatever else you may think of him, he did get Brexit done. And the free trade agreement, as you will know better than anyone, Liam, is nothing to do with leaving the EU in a sense. We have already left. It's a consequence of leaving the EU. And all the talk about deal or no deal, it's not a Brexit deal or no deal. It's a free trade agreement, just as the same as it would be if we were negotiating it with America, Australia, or any other country. Why do you think it is that so many people who voted Brexit have been abandoned by friends who voted Remain? There are, of course, many honourable people who voted Remain. It was a perfectly reasonable thing to do, of course. But there is a hardcore, isn't there, of Remain voters who think that anybody who voted Brexit is stupid, racist and doesn't deserve to be in their social circle. Yeah, I quote some figures in the book that show that 37% of Remainers would be really anxious if one of their kids married or went out with a Brexiteer. Figure the other way around is 11%. So you can draw your own conclusions. I've never understood this intolerance because there is another point of view. I fully recognise that Remainers have a perfectly valid argument. Absolutely. I wasn't convinced Brexiteer until 2016 when David Cameron came back from Brussels with absolutely nothing in his renegotiation. And I just thought to myself, this institution is incapable of reforming itself unless it means more Europe. So I'm not an ideological Brexiteer. I decided to vote Brexit for perfect reasonable reasons and most Remainers did so on their side of the fence. But if you are to formulate your own arguments for something, and this is a point that really I hope comes out in the book, you have to understand the other person's point of view. Otherwise, you're just talking to your own echo chamber. And that was the problem for Remainers. Throughout this process, they were just talking to themselves. They didn't seem to have any inclination to persuade other people of their point of view because they thought there wasn't another point of view to be held. You were absolutely thick and stupid if you voted for Brexit. They couldn't understand why people did it, despite many of us trying to explain to them. Finally, in a subject close to my heart, as I know it is to yours, we've discussed it over the years, and that's social mobility here in the UK. You and I are from similar backgrounds in that we were both the first in our families to go to university. We weren't born into some media dynasty like so many of our colleagues are. We battled our way into this profession and it's a pretty tough profession to get into. When you look at the history of our country in the last 20 or 30 years, since you pushed your way into journalism and built your platform of success, do you think Ian Dale today, Ian Dale's equivalent, would have had the opportunities that you had? 
Um, I, I hope so. I doubt it in some ways. I mean, I'll give you one example. I've been on LBC for 10 years now, and I got the job in 2010. Nowadays, all media are obsessed with big names. And I don't think the Indela 2020 would get the chance that I had in 2010 to get a national radio station, given that I had no experience of presenting on the radio. I had lots of experience in the media and politics. I think that the chances would be fewer. It also, I think the whole sort of public school Oxbridge thing is still there. And it was only comparatively recently that I felt that I was their equal, which sounds ridiculous when, I mean, I'm not exactly a shrinking violet, but I always, I didn't have a chip on my shoulder as such, but I was, if I was in the company of sort of George Osborne, David Cameron, Ed Vasey, Nick Bowles, those kind of people in a group, I always felt slightly inferior to them. And that only changed really not that long ago. Imposter syndrome. Well, it is a bit of imposter Mm. syndrome. You're absolutely right. People think of me as sort of quite extrovert, confident and all the rest of it. But as you'll see in the book, and so somebody messaged me yesterday saying, I'm a third of the way through it. I didn't realise that you were so insecure about yourself. Mm. I'm not sure it's necessarily insecurity. I suppose it's the need for validation, which I think a lot of people need. Yeah, but you must draw strength, Ian, from the fact that you're in that room with George Osborne and David Cameron. You weren't born into some big finance family. You weren't born into going to Eton and St Paul's. You grew up on a small farm in North Essex. Yes, indeed. So a very, very ordinary family. And you battled your way out of there, didn't you? It wasn't that I battled my way out. If I had been born 10 years before, I'm convinced that I would now still be a farmer because all my family are farmers. Yeah. But the fact that I was born in 1962 rather than 1952 meant that I did have opportunities. And I do think it was actually Margaret Thatcher that enabled people like me to move out of our backgrounds. I'm not ashamed of my background. I had the most wonderful childhood. But I knew from the age of about five that farming wasn't for me. And my parents, bless them, were really helpful to me. They never put pressure on me to stay in farming, which wasn't the case for a lot of my relations. So I decided I wanted to be a German teacher. Now, OK, my life took on a slightly different <laughs> turn, but I went to study German at, at the University of East Anglia. And I'm sure that many of my outer family thought that I was mad. Well, I mean, since then, that was in 1980, we're, what, 40 years on from that now. And I say at the end of the book, I say, well, I hope not just my close family, but all of my outer family can actually feel slightly proud of one or two of the things I've done. Probably ashamed of one or two of the things I've done as well along the way, which I also talk about in the book. You um, do. <laughs> I do, in graphic detail in, in some uh, some chapters. And, and in the end, you have to live your life for yourself. You cannot live it for other people. Well, it's a fabulous book. Why can't we all just get along, shout less, listen more by Ian Dale. Ian, thanks for visiting Planet Normal. Absolute pleasure. Thanks, Liam. It is a fabulous book, Kate. I read it all in in one Mm -hmm. sitting. Ian sent me a review copy. Now, just before we carry on, I know there's lots in there you'll want to discuss, Kate. I do have to clear up one thing. Eagle-eared, or whatever the expression is, eagle-eared, (laughs) sharp-eared, sharp-eared Planet Normal listeners will have heard some barking in the background when Ian was opining about being in the same room as David Cameron and George Osborne. I just want to say that they're his two dogs, Bubba and Dude, as he explained. 
taken off over the last week, I would say, to the extent where mainstream news programmes are covering it. We had um, Majid Nawaz. My... Is, sorry, is that Bubba or Dude, your two famous dogs <laughs> who frequently appear on Twitter? Which one is that? It's uh, Dude, I think. Uh, dude. <laughs> Hi, dude. Russell. Okay, let me just go and shut them in. Hang on a sec. <laughs> Sorry, the Hermes man was delivering. <laughs> <laughs> Kate, you must read the book. It's it's a really good romp yeah. through. Yes, I haven't I haven't read it. Obviously, it hasn't been published yet, but I am looking forward to reading it. And it's funny because he he talked a lot about Twitter, but he used to tweet how many words he'd written each weekend, That's right. um, <laughs> which I thought was amazing. So we've all known this book's been coming for some time. And I think the personal stuff in it and the way he was prepared to be talking about, you know, being insecure, that he had a kind of inferiority complex at one stage. You know, I think that's so good because so many people think that because you're in public life and you're on the media or on your television or you're a journalist, that you must be incredibly confident and pushy. It's not always like that. And there's always a, a hidden person underneath the um, the public persona. He has really put his finger on something though, hasn't he? Here we have somebody who's very much part of the mainstream media. He's, he's presenting on LBC for 10 years now, a big established name. And yet, unlike so many other big established names, he's prepared to take his criticisms of the mainstream media away from the private dinner parties and to say them out loud whatever that may mean for his own career trajectory. It doesn't happen often, does it, Kate? No, and of course he wouldn't last five minutes on uh, on the BBC because he'd be putting opinions that weren't necessarily in line with what the sort of establishment of the BBC think that you have to be. It's a bit like he said about Brexit. They didn't think there was an argument to leave, so they, they didn't want to listen. And it's a bit like sometimes I think the BBC thinks that nobody wants to hear anything that's anything other than the, you know, liberal view of the world. Um, you know, so many people are not on Twitter. And I think we have to remember that because he's right. I mean, I have over 100,000 followers and people used to say to me, oh, well, it's all your enemies following you. But I mean, the end <laughs> seems to think that it's all his friends following him. But also remember that it's not real life. So many people are so busy in their lives, so hard working, trying to get on with life that they wouldn't even think of going on Twitter. So he he's right on that. But it has a huge influence these days, which the mainstream media is having to to get used to. Here's the thing about Ian Dale, though, and it's similar to Andrew Neil. Ian, of course, was a declared Brexiteer, a former Conservative Party candidate. He was David Davis' chief of staff when David mm. Davis was trying to become you know, prime minister, no less. He's been up there at the very top table of politics, and yet he has friends across the political spectrum and when he gets a Tory minister on, he'll almost make a point of kicking them in the shins harder than he otherwise would. Mm -hmm. And Andrew Neil was the same, often accused of, accused being the operative word of, of having certain opinions, which the majority of the country share. And yet when he gets a Conservative politician in his crosshairs, he gives no quarter. And yet why is it that opinions held by someone like Ian Dale, by Andrew Neil, by, frankly, Kate, you and me, are seen as almost uh, offensive to the bien-pensant elite who continue to run the BBC. There seems to be a determination to close down opinions, which often very, very cosseted BBC operatives from wealthy families, no sense of financial insecurity in their lives for generations, seem to dismiss. And, and the classic example, Liam, of, of what you've just said is, you know, it was 
this whole story about migrants and people coming into Dover and all of that started off by someone who's not seen as certainly not seen as mainstream media done by by Nigel Farage. And then only fortunately because of the way he did it, ITV have finally taken it up and they did a very good piece this week about it. And suddenly something that started off on Twitter by an individual has become a story that is now reaching out to people who, who aren't on Twitter. So Twitter does have a very good role sometimes of, of moving things to stories that wouldn't necessarily be covered by that kind of media that we've just been talking about. So, so far this year, 3,150 migrants, an estimated 3,150 migrants have crossed the channel illegally. That compares to just 1,850 during the whole of 2019. But also people traffickers are scaring potentially illegal migrants into coming to the UK before Brexit, quotes, closes the door. We see lots of pictures on the television now of men wearing masks and life jackets being brought into Dover uh, on a Border Force speedboat. And the Home Office has indeed confirmed that Border Force and the partner agencies are dealing with, quotes, multiple incidents as countless small boats cross the world's busiest shipping lane. Very, very tough for politicians to deal with this at the same time that we're bringing in post-Brexit controls on immigration that are meant to moderate freedom of movement. Well, yes. And of course, if you raise it at all, you're you're branded a racist. And that's what's been so upsetting for so many people. But more and more people are speaking out. I'd tweeted something yesterday, which, which, you know, I just said, this can't be allowed to go on until the transition period's over, because otherwise we are going to be, have so many more people. And no one ever knows. I, I just wish Priti Patel would come out and make a statement and say very clearly what is happening to those people, yeah. how soon they will be looked at and, and sent back if they're not legitimate. And most of them, of course, have come for genuine you know, economic reasons, but they're not many, many, many of them are not in fear of their lives. And why should they sort of beat the queue for people who are legitimately trying to get in to the country? Now, I, I sound like I'm getting quite cross about it, but I am because I know out there in the country, people are very angry and they're not being listened to, are they? They're not. And we can't say often enough that repeated international surveys from the likes of the Pew Global Institute and others show that the UK, despite us endlessly being told that we're intolerant, we constantly top international surveys for tolerance towards and welcome extended to immigrants. I'm an immigrant to the UK, Kate, as you know. Most of my closest friends as a child growing up in Northwest London were from immigrant societies. Yeah. This is the engine room of Britain's economic success. I could get Absolutely. really emotional talking about it. And yet it's so often recent immigrant communities that are most upset and concerned when the laws are completely flouted. The only countries in the world that are more tolerant of immigrants than the UK, there's no EU country that is of all the EU 27, we've now Well, that's why they're leaving France. We are the most tolerant, more tolerant than Sweden, more tolerant than Denmark, lots, lots more tolerant than Germany, 
France and Spain, by the way. Mm-hmm. The only two countries in the world that come close to us are Canada and New Zealand, two countries, the whole essence of which, if you like, is built on you know historic white immigration. We can have a debate about that. But they're the only two countries yeah. that are more tolerant than the UK. And yet we are constantly yeah. told how terrible the UK is. My family's had its difficulties over the years, an Irish Catholic family, right, coming to London in the 30s and then again in the 50s. Uh, Has it been perfect? No. Has there been prejudice and racism? Of course there has been. Have we been given a fair chance? Absolutely. Have we tried to make a success of it? Of course we have. And I absolutely detest this constant aspersion being cast on people in the UK that we are a racist society, again, not least by our national broadcaster. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, you, you put it perfectly. And as someone like yourself, who's, who was, whose family came as an immigrant, then you understand it. But it doesn't help, you know, the genuine immigrants for this kind of illegal entry to be then actually rewarded. And that's what it seems to most people is happening at the moment. Okay, I did want to move on just before we go on to readers' emails, because you're obviously from Northern Ireland. I remember I first met you in the early 90s, way before the Good Friday Agreement. Yes. And we instantly struck up a conversation, one we've maintained ever since. But I thought with you on Planet Normal and the passing of John Hume, it would be remiss for us not to to say what we feel about the death of the SDLP leader, John Hume, just a few months after the death of his uh, partner, Seamus Mallon, the two men really led the drive, bringing the nationalist community and the unionist community together to the extent that they could before the Good Friday Agreement. Some people say that without John Hume, Kate, there wouldn't now be peace in Northern Ireland. What's your take? Well, I think he, he will go down in history as one of the great Irish men of of this century and the last century, and there's no doubt about it that the work he did prepared to work across the the divide with David Trimble, the unionist leader, but then be work, working with uh, the IRA to try and get them to move away from violence. I mean, the thing that really, really should be on John Hume's gravestone is that he was a man of peace and he completely and utterly condemned Republican violence. And that was so crucial. And of course, his own party, when the peace process did come, actually lost out to Sinn Féin then because many of them saw him as having almost sort of sold out the Republican ideal. But without him, I mean, it was interesting to see how many people across the world spoke out about him. Seamus Mallon, the deputy leader of the SDLP, died in January, of course. They were a double Mm. act, weren't they? They took the political gamble of their lives by holding those secret talks with the IRA. But at the same time, they were reaching out to David Trimble, weren't they? And and how apt it was that John Hume and David Trimble jointly won the Nobel Peace Prize. Yes, that was that was something that, of course, was celebrated right across Northern Ireland. You know, for two people from two completely different yeah. backgrounds. Without John Hume, we wouldn't be where we are today, without a doubt. One of my most formative political experiences was with you, Kate Hoey, 
when do you remember oh, yeah. we, we drove around Northern Ireland just before the referendum, before on the Good Friday oh, Agreement, right. and it what of what course. what what a cast of characters that was. Gosh, I'd forgotten you were there, Liam. I'd I was there. You were I was there. driving oh. the bus. It was you, yes, um, David Trimble. It was Lord Cranbourne, Lord Cranbourne who at the time was the leader of the Lords, and of course another very staunch Unionist yes. who was. As you were, Kate, giving your blessing to the Good Friday Agreement, David Trimble was giving his blessing to the Good Friday Agreement. And I'll never forget, I'll say this to you now, I will never forget Daphne Trimble ended up having to go home to help a neighbour or something. She got a phone call on a huge mobile phone. I think it was even David Trimble's phone. The whole world oh, is yes. watching this peace process. you got the Sky News <laughs> helicopter uh, and Daphne Trimble has to go back to help a neighbour. So me as a reporter, I end up driving the minibus, driving you lot around. I mean, how Northern Ireland is that? The politics is really, really local and yet the whole world is local. absolutely on yes. a knife edge. Which way is this going to go? Which way is this going to go? Everybody knows what you're doing yeah, I'll, I'll, ne- I'll never forget yeah. that and the courage that you and Robert Cranbourne showed it really left a mark on me you know I come from the Catholic tradition uh, as, as you know uh-huh. but watching you and Robert two staunch unionists I'll never forget it in car parks mm. in the rain in Northern Ireland trying to convince you know quite remote unionist communities that they need to go for this they need to back this this is the way forward mm. despite your reservations despite Lord Cranbourne's reservations despite David Trimble's reservations I thought that was real in those car parks I thought that was real state gosh you've got you've got a great memory Liam <laughs> <laughs> I Perhaps I was so scared of your driving that it's been a sort of traumatic thing in my head that I've forgotten. So now, finally, on to our listener emails. Thanks to all of you who wrote in to us at planetnormal.telegraph.co.uk. And Graham from Beaconsfield wrote to say that, wow, I never thought that an appearance on your wonderful podcast would result in immediate elevation to the Lords. <laughs> a great episode with Kate and Claire showing how to give clear, informed opinions on a range of subjects. You'd better up your game, Halligan, he says. Otherwise, it won't be the Lords for you. I think, I think that ship has sailed. Loving your work, says Lee, about Planet Normal. As a pharmacist, he says... Since the middle of March, GPs have shuttered themselves into their buildings and essentially refused to see patients. This follows similar testimony we heard on Planet Normal a couple of weeks ago when Holly, and the district nurse we called Holly, gave a really astonishing interview to my regular co-pilot, Alison Pearson. Since the pandemic hit, says Lee, of his pharmacy, We've seen an incredible influx of patients seeking treatment and help. I've never seen anything like it before in my 25-year career as a pharmacist. Our workload has virtually doubled overnight, and my pharmacy team has worked unbelievably hard all through the pandemic, despite the personal risk. I'm extremely proud of them. We are now the new front line of the NHS. Doctors, if you disagree, email us, planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. And Louise has emailed to say that Planet Normal is so refreshing. Listening to the BBC, one begins to wonder what has happened to the real world. The Daily Government briefings made people more nervous. I fear the economy, this is what you've been saying, Liam, will take a long time to recover. Again, it will be the poor that will suffer most. But with so many job losses, there could be massive social unrest. In my mind, the cure of the lockdown has been worse than the disease itself. So that's it for voyage number 11. Time to return again from planet normal to the madness 
of the real world. Thanks so much for all your emails and do keep writing to us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. And if you've enjoyed the show, please do tell your friends and family. And we would be grateful if you want to leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. As we say each week, this podcast is free to listen to on the Telegraph website or by subscribing on your podcast app. Subscribing to a podcast has nothing to do with being a subscriber to the Telegraph itself. It just means that the podcast is automatically downloaded to your phone or tablet each week so you never miss an episode. And if you have any questions about podcasts, how to listen, where to find the best ones, there is a very useful article explaining all things podcasts on the Telegraph website. And we're going to put that link to that in the show notes of this episode. And finally, finally, in case you thought we'd forgotten, just before we go, here's some more of your health and safety emails, your recollections of the health and safety practices of yesteryear or lack of them, stuff we did as kids that did us no harm. And Mike from Gloucestershire, he's recalling his chemistry lessons of his childhood in the early 60s. And he says, my interest in chemistry was hugely boosted by our chemistry master demonstrating the thermite process on the school (laughs) playing field. Absolutely no PPE involved. I think that's what makes welding work. You get the huge flashes of (laughs) phosphorus. Only he did it on the playing field and they just had to keep a good distance away. We used to pass a chemist shop on the way home from school and after our interest had been piqued, we started popping in to obtain experimental provisions. And this was a one-man shop, not a chain, and he seemed only too pleased to encourage our interest. Our favourite trick, though, was to get a drum of carbide powder that was still sold for the old acetylene lamps, emptied into a drain by the side of the road and ignited (laughs) after a few minutes by a thrown match, it was possible to blow a steel drain cover several feet up in the air. Happy days, he says. (laughs) Here's one from John in Wiltshire. It's the late 70s. I was 13, cricket mad, living in Somerset. Ahead of a cricket festival, together with my mate, we cycled six miles to the cider farm to obtain the obligatory gallon. After passing the exhaustive security test of being asked by the farmer if we were 18 and correctly replying yes in our deepest voice, we (laughs) strapped the cider onto my bike rack and set off. The cricket was brilliant and nobody questioned the two slightly drunk but well-behaved 13-year-old skinny lads who'd sneaked in because their ticket money had been spent on necessary refreshments. So that's it. (laughs) Keep the emails coming on health and safety and anything else as we leave planet normal and speed back to our mad, mad world. Thanks as ever to our producers, Louisa Wells and Elliot Lampett, and our editor, Theola Ludis. And thanks, too, to our fabulous guest presenter, my co-pilot for the last two episodes while Alison's been away, Kate Hoey, Baroness Hoey. It's been great having you on. Please, please come again. Well, I will, and I've thoroughly enjoyed it, and I hope Alison's had a great holiday. So that's it for our 11th journey to Planet Normal. News and views from beyond the bubble... Alison and I will meet you on the launch pad next week for voyage number 12. So until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. Hold up. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.